Welcome to the podcast series from the Decision-Making Voices from the Field Leadership Seminars at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.harvard.edu backslash translation. Good afternoon. My name is Rachel Yao, and I'm a doctoral student in the Biological Sciences and Public Health program here at the Harvard School of Public Health. Our guest today is Ms. Adrienne Germain, President Merita of the International Women's Health Coalition and an advocate of women's health around the globe for over 40 years. After receiving degrees from Wellesley College here in Massachusetts and the University of California at Berkeley, she spent 14 years at the Ford Foundation advocating for women's rights, including four years as the foundation's representative to Bangladesh. She was that country's first female representative from any donor agency and worked to improve women's health and educational opportunities while there. Ms. Germain left Bangladesh to co-found what became the International Women's Health Coalition with a hope to invest in local women-led organizations that provide services in countries rife with gender inequality, as well as advocating for global policy changes and funding for women's issues. Since its inception, the organization has invested in countries in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Ms. Germain became president of the IWHC in 1998, and in that role, she continued the group's advocacy against gender inequality, for an end to violence against women, and for access to needed health care. She served in that role until 2011. Currently, Ms. Germain is the Menschel Senior Leadership Fellow here at HSPH and serves as a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, the UNDP's expert group on gender and AIDS responses, and two Human Rights Watch advisory committees, among others. She also speaks and publishes extensively, and this year received the United Nations Population Award for her lifetime work and we are excited to have her here with us today. Now, as I turn the session over to Professor Diane Wirth, please join me in welcoming Ms. Adrienne Germain. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. And Adrienne, mm -hmm. welcome to uh, this event. Um, I'm, I was delighted uh, to hear that you won the uh, United Nations Award for uh, Population. Um, but you, you told me you were surprised to receive the award. And, uh, you know, uh, having looked at your CV and all of your work, I mean, it's, you're totally deserving of the award. But, but tell me why you were surprised. Mm -hmm. Well, um, basically, I've spent all of my work life challenging the population field um, to better meet women's health and human rights needs. So uh, I really, you could say, I've been a thorn in the side. <laughs> Basically, since the field started, um, it, it, it began really in earnest in its contemporary period uh, in the late 60s. And um, I uh, felt a, a great sense of, of interest, of course, but what was really driving me was that in 1968, as a junior in college, I had spent six months in Peru on a household survey. And I didn't speak Spanish very well, which seemed a handicap at the time. However, what it meant was that I absorbed quite viscerally what women's lives were like in the Amazon, in the high Andes Mountains, down in the plains on farms and villages, and in urban slums. And that, that experience never left me. And I saw a, a, um, uh, sort of roundness of needs that women face, all of us, any one of us here uh, in the world, 
that we, we don't just have um, the capacity to conceive and bear children. We have many other capacities and we should be invested in and supported in those ways. Well, after Wellesley, I went to Berkeley and that was the time of Paul Ehrlich's population bomb. Paul was at Stanford and the demography part, department, part of sociology, was active. And uh, so I, I was reminded of those women in Peru and um, inspired by one set of professors uh, who, Kingsley Davis and Judith Blake, famous demographers, who basically understood, as no other professors did, what I had viscerally experienced with women, which was that they had very good reasons to have lots of children. And until and unless their lives were changed, they would probably go on having children. So uh, that led me then to the Population Council for my first job, where I immediately got into a bit of a tussle with staff and the presidency, because all I ever heard about there was users of contraception or postpartum cases. And that didn't match up at all well with the women I had come to know in, Bang in uh, Peru. So uh, um, there was also a deep injustice at that time. Contraceptives were much less perfect then than they are even now. The Population Council was a very important leader in developing those contraceptives and also helping to deliver them to poor women in low-income countries. But they weren't willing to provide backup of safe abortion to, uh, for contraceptive failure. And to me, that was profoundly unjust. Uh, so I was, you know, fairly vocal about that <laughs> and was about to decide to leave the council because I didn't really feel I was getting anywhere, even though we had some data at that time, not many. Um, and the Ford Foundation called me on the recommendation of my professors at Berkeley, and basically I left and went to Ford for 14 years. That's great. Well, thank mm -hmm. you for that. Now, tell me, um, as you've sort of looked through time, there have been different challenges to women's sexual and reproductive health sort of in each period. And I wonder if you might reflect for the students in the audience sort of the, you know, the big challenges you see now and sort of contrast those to the challenges you saw in the earlier days of the field. You've just talked a, a little bit about your early days, but maybe give us some, some sense of you know, where you see the field having gone from w when you started to now. Mm -hmm. and, and what are the kinds of challenges that, that the students entering the field now or the professionals entering the field now are going to face and, and what kinds of things they need to know to be able to address those challenges? Mm -hmm. Um, the biggest challenge now, frankly, is implementation. We've gone through a whole set of, of steps in these last years that have led to a better database, more understanding among professional communities about women's health and the intricate interrelationship between women's health and their human rights or violations of their human rights. Um, we have um, a lot of rhetoric. And thanks to efforts that I might talk about a little bit later, if you feel want to go in that direction, we have global policy change that, that um, we women from around the world created. Um, so we have a lot of advantages now that we didn't have then. 
But the agenda that we put in place in the early 1990s at the global level with the world's governments, we being women and the world's government being mostly their representatives being men, nonetheless agreed in 1994 at the World Population Conference that population policy should change, that it should not be simply vertical delivery of what are called in the UN family planning services, um, it, uh, separate as much as possible from the health system, but rather it should be a policy which starts front and center with the health and human rights of women and which provides at least a minimum core package of service, which includes contraception, but also um, the skilled technical support that women need to go through childbirth safely, which until that time had been invested in uh, almost nowhere in low-income countries. It involved um, sexually transmitted infections including HIV, which was just beginning to come to the global consciousness at that time, 1994. And then the fourth element was access to safe abortion. Now, it was astonishing that we could get that shift. One reason that we could get the shift in population policy was that we also brought into that dialogue and negotiating arena the facts about demographic momentum, which is to say that most of the countries in Asia, Africa, and Latin America that we were focused on have very large populations of young people under the age of 19. And what we got through for the first time in Cairo, in addition to the reproductive health package of services that I named, was a recognition that adolescents have a right to information, education, and that package of services. This was a, a, an incredible breakthrough. And that makes it basically this new population policy approach a win-win situation. For women, it is what women need and have a right to. For the demographers and the population-oriented people, those who work on environment and climate change and so on, this approach was far more suited to all of these adolescents under the age of 19 who keep coming through the system um, than the earlier approach of simply delivering um, a, a narrow set of contraceptive services, most of which are not appropriate for adolescents. So since that time, however, the big challenge is to get it implemented because you just as you have departments and universities that need to try to get together and collaborate and exchange and so on, these fields were siloed. Mm -hmm. and, and so, so how, you know, that's a, that's a really important point. I mean, so how do you get, get this across to policymakers, to people who don't, aren't experts in the field, but need to be convinced in order to implement? How, how have you, what challenges do you see there? How have you done this? What mm -hmm. role has your leadership mm -hmm. played in that? Yeah. Well, first of all, despite our discussion here and whatever you might know about what I've done with my life, I'm not a revolutionary. I'm an evolutionary. <laughs> and so I started my core premise in the Population Council, in the Ford Foundation, and then when I later on became an overt spokesperson myself, was that we have to have data 
we must have evidence to make our case because resources are always scarce and people who hold power are going to make decisions that distinguish among different groups of people or different health problems in regard to who gets funding, who gets the human resources, and so on. So data were terribly important. And for a lot of my, well, the ten, first 10 years of my work at the Ford Foundation was fundamentally supporting research, uh, just because we had not nearly enough information. Um, and what I came to understand, however, was that when I arrived at Ford, very early actually, I was asked to do a, a, a budget memo, and that led me to look at what the Ford Foundation was doing in the world, and I came to discover that there was one other woman in the Ford Foundation International Division. There had never been any women in the country office staff, and certainly no representatives who were women. Um, they had no programs in support of women except family planning. The Ford Foundation was a leader in helping to create the population mm -hmm. field as I described it. So I said in this budget memo to the vice president what I had learned at Berkeley from Kingsley Davis and Judith Blake that, Blake that made sense to me in terms of the women's lives in Peru that I had seen, which is that women have good reasons to have large families. And if you want and expect women to have fewer children and also to use imperfect contraception, you have to give them options, education, employment, and so on. But you also have to approach their health as, as a package. And you know, while even if women have a lower family des desired family size and start using contraception, they do want some children. And when they have the, the wanted pregnancy, then they need to be supported with um, delivery care. So this was not popular. But Dave Bell, who later spent years at Harvard, so some of you might know him, was an extraordinarily open-minded person. He liked not simply the evidence that I could give him at that moment, which was very early, this was 1973, to, but the logic of what I was saying to him. So he said, okay, fine. You don't have to do the job you were hired to do. <laughs> Look at the Ford Foundation and tell us what we should do. Um, so later on, when we have your questions and answers, we, we could have some examples. But let me tell you that it was a WASP male establishment par excellence in those days. And nobody wanted to do this. Nobody. So I learned at that moment then, okay, evidence is not enough. Logical use of evidence is not enough. I'm going to take a lot of my time and go out and be with these country offices of the Ford Foundation, including the first one was Bangladesh, so I've worked there since um, 1975. And I'm going to hear from women. I'm going to find them in all their different communities. Uh, at, the, at whatever level they may be in a university, all the way down to the most impoverished, landless women. And um, so at the same time that I was funding mostly research from New York, I was learning enormously from the realities of women's lives and writing reports and holding meetings and so on to help my colleagues understand what are the realities that women live 
this isn't just about a number of children or how many uh, women die in childbirth. This is about violence. It's about sexually transmitted diseases and what that means not only to their health, but to their social standing. Um, and so this combination of, on the one hand, scientifically based evidence, logical argument, but bringing in the qualitative work of what are women's lives like, what are the factors that constrain them from reaching their full potential, was just vital. Now, we don't need that so much. There's been years and years of this kind of investment. The difficulty we really face is this siloing, whether it's in your own training, you know, discipline by discipline, department by department, or whether it's in the separation, very often, of the researcher from the policymaker, so the policymaker doesn't get what he usually he needs. Um, and um, so it's that iteration that a new generation now um, needs to come up with. Okay. Now, you know, Julio actually likes to talk about this. He likes to talk about the T-shaped individual, you know, a, a person that has a real in-depth training in a certain area, but then has enough knowledge, sort of deep knowledge of the, of the touching area, the other areas to address big problems. And I think that's what you're saying. Mm -hmm. So you need, not only do you need discipline depth, because you have to be an expert, you have to generate um, evidence uh, or, or help create policy, but then you need to understand the other fields. And I, that's mm -hmm. a, it's very interesting to hear that from someone whose life was in the, in the practice area, because that's one of the big discussions we're having now um, at the school. Now, maybe switching topics just a little bit, can you give us a sense about the social and cultural and religious taboos? Obviously, this is an area which touches many aspects of life, and, and where you think that plays a role and you know, how, you're, how one needs to address that going forward. Mm -hmm. um, well, that's also a very important question for me because it's a very common question, and it's a challenge to all of us, actually, who've been working to promote sexual and reproductive health and rights in other people's countries. Um, and from the beginning, I've always been very aware of being an outsider. But the fact is that from the earliest time, my experience in Peru, which I mentioned, I've learned what I know about women, and also I have learned my feminism from women in in these other countries. And from the point of view of all the women that I found during those years with the Ford Foundation when I mentioned that I reached out to try to find women, they just deepened my own knowledge, my skills, my understanding of what it is that women need to mobilize uh, and to, to act vis-a-vis -vis their own governments or their own communities. So, uh, in fact, I used to get in trouble with American feminists because I'd not read any of the literature. <laughs> I don't, you know, I, I, I don't know it. A lot of my life work has, has been built on making certain kinds of compromises, which is something that I really wanted to mention here today. Uh, and that is that as, as long as you have a commitment and a knowledge of what it is that you want to do, and in my case, it was to, to 
reduce an, an area of extreme and very widespread injustice. Um, and you keep your eye on that ball. When you work in the policy arena, and even to a great extent if you're doing research in other people's countries, or you're teaching people mm -hmm. from other countries, you can move and tack, as in sailing, you know, you can move off your course a bit and then come back onto it and then move again. But if you don't have that very clear conviction out in front of you, several things happen. One is, and that's what's happened after the population policy changed, and we have reproductive health and rights. Many people in the population and family planning field adopted that language either with no understanding of what it really meant for their own work, or, I'm sorry to be cynical, they adopted it because it was politically correct, but they went on doing the same work. And there's a lot of pressure to do that. From day one in the Ford Foundation, I, very early I had a colleague say to me, Adrian, why are you doing this? You're going to ruin your career. Here you are, this young, bright thing, and you, you know, why are you focusing on women? It's happened to me over and over, and whether it's about focusing on women specifically or whether it's uh, taking up a sexual and reproductive sexual and, and rights perspective, to bring those two things together has been entirely um, innovative. Uh, many of the funders and national governments, that includes finance ministries, who are really strapped for resources, and I know all about that, having worked in Bangladesh in the worst of the worst years after the Civil War and the famine of 1974. But there, there is out there a whole world of people and institutions that do not recognize entitlements. They do not recognize human rights. They rather want to know, well, what is simply and only the scientific evidence? And I can tell you from my life experience that if you go only with your scientific evidence and you don't, and I mean they're mostly quantitative, and you don't get down and really understand what, in my case, women and adolescents' lives are like, you can go way off course. So it's a, it's a constant learning. Mm -hmm. and. The researchers, so I think, are important. Good. So why don't we let the students uh, ask some questions? We have, I think, there are a number of people with questions in the audience. So, do I have a volunteer? Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Martin Reedy. I'm a second-year master's student in the Department of Society, Human Development, and Health. And I was just wondering. You you mentioned having to draft a budget memo while you're at Ford. And you also spoke to the need to have the data, to have data. And I was just wondering, for those of, there are a lot of us here very mindful that we have to have research and we have to be very good at it. And you mentioned the T, being a T. But what are those other skill sets that aren't in the research lane that would be beneficial for us to focus on, especially if we're looking to not only work domestically but internationally that you think I understand you, you love being a researcher, and that's great. You, you enjoy that uh, very specific area, but I think you make sure you get some of these skill sets before you move out. Well, I would say um, 
There's, there's several, really. Um, and they're probably evident from what, what I described to you about my own uh, development. And that is, the sooner you can go to whatever place it is that people live whom you care about, the better. That, you know, understanding the reality of those people's lives, whether it's people who are at high risk of malaria uh, or, as in my case, women, um, especially those who are most disadvantaged. So, you know, the first thing is get out of this building <laughs> however you can possibly do it. And even if you leave this building and are going on, say, for example, as I did in college, a household survey or an in-depth research project, or even an operational research project to see how well a certain intervention is working, make sure you put into your schedule, your time, the possibility to reach out to local people who may, may be able to connect you more with the wider community of the people you're concerned about, not just the respondents in your research. A second thing then, um, and, and this isn't, you know, you're not taught these things anywhere that I know about in a formal sense, but it's the development of advocacy skills. Uh, and I found when I was hiring for the coalition that actually people with MPH degrees were often very strong candidates for our jobs because they had the core abilities to look at research, to understand the data, to question the conclusions, but then also to bring a wide base of data and research findings together and say, what does this mean in terms of, in our case, women's lives or adolescents' lives? And who do we want to influence that might respond to such information? So actually, the, the MPH degree is, is a very important one I've found in, in my own work of making this bridge between the scientific evidence and the policy makers. Okay. We have some additional questions over here. Hi, I'm Rebecca Ross. I'm a two-year master's student in health policy and management. And I was wondering, what do you envision for the future in women's health and human rights, and what obstacles do you think we will face in 10 or 20 years? 10 or 20 years. Well, you know, <laughs> for all of us who've done this work, you know, we sort of had to have a 20-year vision, but we never thought of it that way because, frankly, uh, that seemed too long to let women go on dying unnecessarily or suffer from violence and so on. So, but I think the challenges that, that you'll face right in the foreseeable future, that may be three years or five years, is the overall economic situation for the countries that at least I know about and I'm concerned with, and for the external donors, the, the government donors like the U.S. government or the Europeans, but also the multilateral system, the United Nations system. What happens when resources become so scarce is, is terrible struggles, and the disadvantaged people, whether they're disadvantaged by their sex or by their race or by their income, have the least opportunity and, and power to affect those changes. And right now we're in a period where um, 
let me take HIV and AIDS. Uh, because I, from the beginning, understood that to be part of sexual and reproductive health and rights for women. But from an epidemiological point of view, women are vulnerable, they're not at high risk. And the donors in the UN system are, who advise national governments are driven by the, the core understanding of ep epidemiological principles and models, which I respect, which is to say that you want to try to reach those who are at the greatest risk of being infected and transmitting. Now, in most of the highly affected countries of Africa and South Asia, um, if you only look at those people who are very hard to access and reach with services and so on, what's going to happen and which, what, what has happened is that girls and women who are vulnerable are more than half of those people living with HIV and AIDS now, and in particular among the adolescent group. Adolescent girls have far higher rates of infection in several African countries than their age mates who are boys. And why is that? Well, that's where you have to look at the social conditions. Now, UNAIDS, which I've spent a great deal of time with, has some emerging rhetoric about this, has failed utterly to put money into it, to assign skilled staff. They think that if you're going to deal with women, you can just have anybody, doesn't matter. Um, and this is a typical kind of response. I've seen it over and over again. And it's not to, to criticize or jeopardize any one United Nations agency. We just are in a situation not much different from where I was on population policy, where people at the core of the HIV-AIDS power structure have come into that from a very different life experience, which has been not the world of women, the women and the adolescent girls who are so vulnerable, but rather other populations who are very, very important. We want the women to be added. We want adolescents. We want AIDS money to um, support comprehensive sexuality education for adolescents. Not disease education, of which there's quite a bit but comprehensive sexuality education that really prepares young people for a, a, a different kind of life than their parents or older cohorts have had. But there's just no fundamental understanding of that uh, among those who are making the funding decisions. I deal a lot with PEPFAR, the U.S. Uh, Foreign Assistance Program for HIV and AIDS, and it's the same mm -hmm. picture. So. Uh, what I'm saying is there's a lot of work to do, a lot of educating to do. And in these years, several things are going to be most important that have been important all throughout. Marshalling the evidence, getting it to the people who make a difference in terms they can understand, make arguments that are based on their own vested interest, not just ours. Uh, but it took a long time for the AIDS community to recognize how vulnerable women in Africa are. And yet the main response has been there only on vertical transmission, including by the U.S. government. And that is not going to um, really get us out of the situation where 
while we try to reach the, the, the men who are having sex with many, many partners, or we try to reach the sex workers, you know, the high-risk groups, more and more women and younger and younger women are being infected. So it's a combination of that, that passion, that women's reality. Um, another thing I think I haven't mentioned is gaining access. And in, in my life, I've had the good fortune to have access to someone like David Bell, and later on Franklin Thomas, who was the foundation president who sent me to Bangladesh. Um, but if you really, if your career, if your interest is is to see things change directly, or and and not only produce the the data and information for the change you want to see, then advice that was given to me by the head of the National Planning Commission in India in 1976 is what you have to know. And it's the same thing that Sujata Rao said in one of the forums here. Data are not enough. And what Raj Krishna said to me was, look, Adrian, at that time I was actually working on rural wage rates and the desperately bad uh, discrimination against women in agricultural labor. And he said to me, look, Adrian, you can generate whatever data you want from all these economists that we've gotten together. But the fact is, rural wage rates in India are not going to change until women take to the streets. And I, that has come up to me over and over again. So it's the combination of the advocates and the movement with the researchers and the evidence generators that is, I think, so vital for, <coughs> these, for these issues. Great. Thank you. you know, one, one other, I, there's another, at least another student question, but let me just intervene here just for a quick answer and then we may come back to it at the end. Um, you know, one of the things that um, has really changed in the world, if you think about, you know, the, the late two, 2000s and the early 2010 year is the sort of advent of social media, of really access to information through non what we would call non-traditional channels. And also the sort of, with that, the spread of mobile technology, self, particularly cell phones. And I, I just want you to reflect a little bit on what you think that's, what impact that might have. Is that a game changer for women's health or is it just a fancy new technology which everyone is talking about? Um, so you can I think, think about, that. well you can answer it a little bit now, but I, I don't want to take the whole rest of the time, so. No. Okay, well, I think it's a game changer. I was in uh, Bangladesh last year with uh, a large NGO called BRAC, which I've known since it started in 1972. And it's only now, however many years later, in the last, I think it's about three years, that they started to include in their health program uh, basic uh, prenatal care and support for normal childbirth, and then effective referral for complications of childbirth to uh, district or higher level hospital. And uh, one of the main impediments in Bangladesh actually had been getting women to come for such care in the first place. It has one of the highest rates in the world of women giving birth at home. And it's something, a problem that I've worked on for a long time. The cell phone in this context was amazing. 
the, the, the women in these communities, this was a flood-prone area. They're living on, in, in bamboo-sided shelters on um, um, pylons or whatever you call it, in, in the most crowded and difficult conditions you could think of, including malaria and dengue fever and whatever because of the water. But anyway, in this very, uh, very most basic uh, room near the community, they had they had um, placed uh, um, mid-level healthcare providers with cell phones, and in in certain parts of the community where the women are living, they would they gave cell phones and informed the community that if any pregnant woman you know got into difficulty, they could call the 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 birthing center and etc. So, you know that was unimaginable. A very short time ago. Similarly, if you're going to give women a, a full package of health care, we, we have to move toward health systems which can provide a record that's centered on the woman and that's, that's feasible to manage in the health system. So all of this effort now to have health workers in the field uh, input data for each client or each patient there and then at the time and immediate transmission back to the center wherever that is and into the computer rather than having to to go through the hand entry process and all is amazing because if you're really going to follow the woman which is the sort of key mm -hmm. view that we have you have to have the clinical data on her and uh, this is transforming the, the possibility of actually creating a patient record that is in the system. It's not a piece of cardboard paper that the woman has to keep track of herself, which is how we used to do it. It's rather this, this amazing uh, electronic process. And I, so I think there's a lot of um, potential. Okay. All right. We have another student question. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us today. It's really a pleasure. Um, my name is Susan Fields Mead. I'm a student in the QM department of the Master's in Public Health program. And my background is in both biology, medicine, and anthropology. And I can't help but um, wonder through this whole conversation and through my work about the structural and systems-based inequalities that continue to limit women's access to power and economic opportunity. And I see this playing out um, in a conflict that we have between our biological bodies and our biosocial bodies, meaning that our biological bodies dictate that to have babies early and often is preferable from a health standpoint. But our biosocial bodies prefer later or never to have children in terms of access to opportunity. So I was wondering if you had any comments regarding that, specifically regarding contraception as sort of a temporary fix to allow women greater access to a system that doesn't account for their biological needs as reproductive beings? Hmm. Um, it's a challenging question, I think, perhaps because um, as much progress as has been made for some women in some parts of the world that I know about, for example, in, in uh, the higher income or the middle income countries now like Brazil and Mexico or supposedly India, um, women are, are facing, I think, the challenge that I understood you 
to put out, which is to delay childbearing so that they can complete higher education and have professional opportunity and so on and so forth. But so much of my work actually is, is today still with um, hundreds and hundreds of millions of women where that's not the question. It rather is that the social conditions are f forcing them into very early marriage, uh, proof of fertility by having a pregnancy immediately, preferably in too many places, a son, uh, where uh, they don't have even um, the social possibility because of a violent husband or a disagreeing mother-in-law to decide when they want to have a baby or not. It, it's, it's such a fundamentally different you know, situation. Um, we're seeing some small increases in some countries in, in the um, average and median age at marriage, for example, which is bringing many more women into a safe time period, like having babies from, say, 16 or 17 onward, not at 12 and 14. Um, but basically, that's what this struggle is about. And it's about really the self-determination of of women, uh, that they women make their own decisions. I don't know what to do after all these years to, to redesign and encourage societies to adjust so that truly women and men can have equal opportunity and the equal ability to decide, because most societies have not yet raised their sons to understand and to accept a joint fully equal role in the household in childbearing. And as long as that's the case, whether in the corporations or in the couple itself, mm -hmm. women are going to have to be super women and do it all. And so it's, it's tough, but I think it's one of the reasons that when, when I was first drawn into this work by women in other countries, that human rights and gender equality were so central to all of it that it wasn't a fertility issue by itself. It wasn't a health issue alone. But you, you ha we have to bring about changes so that um, women do have fully protected human rights and equality. Now, I think partly that means raising sons differently. And that's why our own work shifted more and more to younger ages, not neglecting the women. We still are out there for all the women but realizing we have to incorporate mm -hmm. the adolescents. And now we're realizing, whoops, we have to go to children as young as seven or eight. Mm -hmm. um, so that's politically very challenging to do. Uh, but I wouldn't do it, and I wouldn't be here if I didn't have the full hope and expectation that that is the right thing to do, and that we have the people and the energy, particularly in the countries, to do it. Yeah, that might be the challenge of the 10, 20 year time yes. frame. Yeah. Great. So I think uh, we unfortunately don't have time for more questions, but thank you very much. If you'd like to say a few concluding remarks, we just have a couple of minutes left. Oh. It's a well, pleasure to have you here. And, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm delighted to be here because the only way these changes are going to happen is through new generations like you. And the only thing I'd like to say, I think, is really that, that you follow your passion. Decide on something you really love to do and want to do, and always keep that conviction in front of you. 
no matter what the opposition is, and there will be more or less opposition, uh, it's not easy. But finding allies, whether they're organized allies or just informal colleagues, and of course through the internet you all have much more capacity now, uh, is, is crucially important because health policy making is fundamentally political. We, we cannot get away from that. And um, in, in order to sustain your conviction through that kind of political process, you need allies. You can't do it by yourself. Great. Well, Adrian, mm -hmm. thank you very much for a very inspiring mm -hmm. session. Thank you. Thank you. This has been a production of Decision Making Voices from the Field at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of the event at www.hsph.harvard.edu backslash translation. We encourage you to share Decision Making Voices from the Field.